Welcome to The Roundup, a North Queensland-based podcast with regional content for regional clinicians. I'm Alyssa Hathaway, a GP and family planning clinician and head of JCU's clinical school here in Mackay. This collaborative podcasting project between North Queensland regional training hubs, JCU, and our local regional hospital and health services will bring you a different regionally relevant podcast each fortnight. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands where we meet today, who were the original providers of healthcare in this region. In this episode, I'm talking about migraine with Dr. Kimberly Forrest, a general neurologist from the Cairns Hospital who works in the public sector. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Alyssa. How are you? I'm really well and very excited to be talking about headaches and migraines specifically, which is such an incredibly common presenting complaint. I know you deal a lot with this. Should we start by talking about how we define migraine? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess before even doing that and thinking about um, migraine in a primary care setting, there's, there, is a, there is a key, there are key diagnostic criteria for migraine, which I'll go into in a moment, but the key is to really suspect it in the first place. So, um, and that requires a lot less specific. So for any patient who's coming in reporting frequent headaches, and perhaps if there's some features that increase the likelihood that this headache can be, could be migraine, um, are things like an associated visual aura, or if they have a family history of migraine, then already that should be raising the suspicion of migraine in your mind. Now, as to the, the actual definition of migraine, um, that's a, that, so what we refer to is the um, ICHD3 diagnostic criteria. So it's a primary headache disorder, and we divide it into migraine with aura and migraine with, without aura. So migraine without aura being the most common. And so strictly speaking, you have to have at least five attacks um, that full, fulfill certain criteria, which I'll list in a moment. And that the headache, uh, the headache attacks have to last for about anywhere between four and seventy-two hours, and that time frame is important. Um, uh, the headache has to have at least two of the following four characteristics. So it has to have a unilateral location. All these are with caveats, though. Some people experience bilateral uh, migraine, but generally a, a side-locked um, pain pulsating quality, moderate or severe pain intensity, and aggravation by um, uh, or causing avoidance of routine physical activities, say, for example, walking or climbing up the stairs. And so during the headache as well, this is the key, the different, one of the key features that differentiates it from just a, a nasty tension headache, for instance, is that you also need to have at least one of the following during the headache. You need to have nausea and or vomiting and photophobia and or phonophobia, so that, that aversion to, to sounds. And as all of our criteria go, um, that it's not better accounted for by any other um, headache diagnosis. Um, so it's, it's that, and that's basically the same for um, migraine with aura as well, but in addition to the, the key headache features, it's typically um, preceded by um, one or more of the following fully reversible aura symptoms, so either a visual aura, which is by far and away the most common, that um, scintillating scotoma or fortification spectrum that people get, 
You can get sensory symptoms. They're pos they can be positive or negative. So a sense of tingling um, or an absence of sensation. Some people, it's very rare, but you can get difficulty speaking. Um, and then there's the, the weird and wonderfuls, motor and brainstem, which I haven't, um, it really is so common. I haven't seen them. <laughs> so it's so yeah. uncommon, rather. I haven't seen them. Yeah. So that's that's the definition of migraine in a nutshell. But again, the key is in the first place. I mean, that can be looked up. I you know, <laughs> I deal with migraine every day. Um, I have a general idea of the diagnostic criteria. But of course, I was reading that straight from the <laughs> from the criteria. I guess what I want to emphasise is that in primary care, just have a general idea about what you're thinking. Just just suspect it in the first place, and um, and know that it's both the headache plus these additional features of the photophobia, phonophobia um, and aggravation um, with with daily activities and nausea and vomiting. Sure, that definition is complicated, but as you say, it's probably not the most important thing when we're thinking about that recurrent headache, but to um, just suspect it, as you say. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, as a primary care physician myself, I know that headache is ridiculously common. And as you said, as a general neurologist, headache makes up an enormous part of your daily work. Yeah. How prevalent is migraine in our community? Yeah, so quite. <laughs> so let's have a look. So um, again, um, it was really great um, looking into this, uh, looking into some extra details uh, for this podcast. So these were numbers that you sort of intuitively know, but it's staggering when you look them up. So I got this data from the, um, the Headache Australia website, and uh, it affects apparently 4.9 million people in Australia. And of course, the that's just the people who suffer from the headaches. Um, that That's not mentioning the families of those people with headaches, you know, they're the employers, they're the government, you know, such a big knock-on effect and apparently it costs about 30 35.7 billion dollars to australia per year in terms of product. Wow. yeah so it's not a it's it's not a small thing it's not just a headache i think is the point no that's um that's an incredible point to make isn't it because we know it's common but that lost productivity is massive oh, uh, i suppose you know in primary care often people are coming in with headache and when I was a junior doctor a little while ago uh, we were always suspicious of people coming in looking for narcotics to manage their headache oh no my headache only goes away with an injection of pethidine or what have you yeah. I you know in primary care I just don't see that I see people who are genuinely suffering and as you say it's their families and their employers who are also impacted are there some risk factors that we need to be mindful of to talk through with our patients? Risk factors for migraine in the first place? Well, yeah. Yeah, so generally it's just, um, so it, it's quite genetic. So that's the, the main risk factor is, um, is uh, unmodifiable. But then mm. maybe what um, perhaps you're alluding to is um, are you thinking along the lines of triggers or things that people can do to um, uh, increase their likelihood of having a migraine? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's actually that's a really interesting point. That's an important thing to bring up because traditionally, so we, we talk about there's a lot of emphasis put on 
triggers. So people will say, you know, if they have a long migraine, if they have a migraine history, they'll be able to say, oh, I avoid chocolate, I avoid red wine. Oh, I know that if the wind is blowing this way, then I'm gonna gonna get a migraine. So in fact, studies haven't really um, borne that out at all. So in terms of triggers, the traditional triggers that people talk a lot about, they're, they're probably not as important as we um, have previously put weight on. And in fact, there's some evidence to suggest that 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 it's more about um, correlation, not causality. So people um, will naturally try to find causes for things, especially things that cause them pain and um, and difficulty in participating in everyday life. So, for example, the um, some people will say ah, chocolate brings it on, whereas um, the current way of thinking is, in fact, that the craving for chocolate may very well be a part of the prodrome of migraine, even before the headache comes on. And a lot of migraine sufferers will tell you this too, that they just don't feel right in the day leading up to their headache day. And so some, and so in that natural human way of trying to figure out a cause to therefore avoid it <laughs> for the next time, um, people, people will often associate, you know, that food that they have craved as the cause rather than um, the effect of the right. migraine. Yeah, so that's, and I think it's important to point that out, um, really, because I think that the the relentless search for triggers can actually be counterproductive and lead to a very restrictive lifestyle um, and diminished quality of life. I know I'd be pretty sad if I was told I could never have chocolate or red wine ever again. <laughs> so, <laughs> and in fact, there's so much more bang for your buck that you can get through other treatments and modifications. Um, so, so that's, yeah, that's as far as that goes. Um, what can you do though? So I guess we're the, what you need to do in order to decrease the risk of, um, triggering a migraine. So people with migraine are just more predisposed. Everyone can, if you tried really hard, everyone could get a migraine, <laughs> but just some have a lower threshold for developing it. Um, and so in people uh, who have um, migraine, um, there's some non-pharmacological measures that we suggest, and it's really quite um, boring. And what we've been, what all doctors in every specialty <laughs> um, have been yammering on about for years, and it's just basic lifestyle measures, good sleep, well-rounded diet, exercise <laughs> and yeah. weight loss is debatable whether as to whether or not it it um uh, decreases the chances of of tipping into a migraine oh now let's not advertise that point because it's a motivator that i use frequently <laughs> <laughs> I, yes I, I i totally agree and i, I wanted <laughs> not to put that in there <laughs> but yeah i but the way i the way i, I rationalize it is that if you if you're getting a, a well-rounded diet exercise and sleep then you know generally the the weight loss <laughs> hopefully follows hopefully. Or, maybe, or maybe we should put it that you know we sh you shouldn't you shouldn't aim for weight loss at uh, um uh single-mindedly and forget about all the other things you know so don't go and get a um don't go and get a uh a gastric sleeve. Gastric sleeve. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, 
Kim, you've talked about the fact that the biggest risk factor for migraine is genetics, which is unmodifiable, uh, and that some of those other triggers that are often talked about in the literature, like chocolate, red wine, and changes in the weather, are really uh, a correlation, not necessarily causal. Uh, and the lifestyle factors like adequate sleep, good diet, and exercise are really important. What are um, some of the other first-line treatments that we should be looking at before we send our patients in to see yourself? Is a headache diary a useful tool, do you think? Yeah, so that's that forms one, one part of the process. And I might even take us back one step um, even and say that the, the process or the decision to treat or to refer um, really comes back to what they told us in med school as well, it comes down to the history. It's really about trying to define in the first place whether or not someone has migraine. Um, and it, you can do that via the definition, obviously, but you, in order to get to that, to see if someone fits that definition, you need to take a good history in the first place. So focused, you know, not a, not a um, you know, general physician long case necessarily because of time pressures, but a focused history plus minus examination to rule where you're thinking really about ruling in the migraine. Like if you have a strong focus, if you have a strong suspicion, you try to think, is this actually migraine? If it is migraine, is it migraine with aura, standard episodic migraine or is it chronic migraine and it becomes chronic migraine if it's over 15 days per month of headaches and then the other important thing you're doing when you're trying to figure out if this is when you're taking this history and trying to diagnose the headache disorder is number one it's important to differentiate migraine from other primary headache disorders so thinking tension headache um, a cluster headache um, for instance um, and that's important because the treatments differ. So if you want treatment success, you've got to define the headache disorder in the first place. Oh. Um, and then the other thing is to make sure that you're not, is to look at look for the red flags as well, to make sure that you're not um, missing any particularly secondary migraine or headache disorders, you know, things that we don't want to miss, subarachnoid hemorrhage, space occupying tumor, giant cell arteritis. So, before going into the the treatments it's important um it might sound like stating the obvious but it's very important to just invest in that initial history taking to make sure that what you've got is highly likely to be migraine therefore in subsequent reviews when perhaps there's not as much time and the patient comes back and says the treatment's not working you can at least rely on the fact that or the you know the confident you have be really relatively confident that the treatment's not working, not because it's the wrong condition that you're treating, but um, because maybe that treatment didn't work for that person. So with that, <laughs> going into it, you're always going to get a lecture about taking histories from a neurologist. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so um, here we go. <laughs> Can't get out of that one. Um, don't get me started on examination. <laughs> but uh, luckily for you, a lot less. Uh, uh, so here we go. So in terms of treatments, yes. So when you when you're treating migraine a couple of considerations be once you're sure it's migraine is um is this uh is is it um episodic migraine or is it chronic because the treatments may differ ever so slightly i guess and then you think about acute versus preventative treatments 
um, and then we can talk a little bit about um, non-pharmacological treatments in a moment. So as far as, um, so if someone has episodic migraine, so that's, that's by definition less than 15 headache days per month, you, were, you may think about um, just giving them acute treatment and everyone should be offered acute treatment and counselling around this. Um, and generally you get the, you know, the, if you look at guidelines and criteria, they say that, you know, only offer acute treatment for anyone who's got less than two headache days per month and maybe think about preventative treatment for anything above that. In reality, as you know, Alyssa, like it comes down to how much it's impacting that person. While one, one person might be able to stoically um, manage four headache days per month, someone else may absolutely not and even one day a month is is unacceptable for their lifestyle so it really comes down to that value judgment um acute treatments so these are the treatments that people um you know it's the pill in the pocket people administer these to themselves when they feel the pain of the migraine coming on and i say pain because there's no evidence for um, unfortunately, for taking these acute treatments during the aura phase, it's just when the headache comes on. So, and as with all pain treatments, they need to be taken uh, the earlier, the better, basically. Hit it hard and fast. There's a, a stepwise approach is the way to go um, with the sort of, with the least um least potentially harmful, the, le the least expensive um, medications being first line. So our old pal aspirin <laughs> and ibuprofen are two of the best ones for acute migraine treatment. So I think one thing that I have to counsel people on often is that it's not just one Asproclear, um, it's three. Um, uh, and in, if you're in the US, even four, but three is usually the trick. Um, and then the same with ibuprofen, 400 to 600 milligrams as soon as possible um, as acute treatment. If that works for people, for their migraines, then that's their treatment from there on in, um, keeping in mind um, the frequency with which they're taking these medications and the, and the, the well-known side effects of NSAIDs. The next line, so if that doesn't work for people, then the next line um, typically is bumping it up to the triptans. So the, these are our, um, tried, true and tested, you know, sumatriptan, risotriptan, elitriptan. Um, and these come in a variety of formulations. The same principles of pain management apply, uh, the sooner the better. Um, and the AMH has very good guidelines on, on how to give these, but it's, it's usually one sometimes up to two in a 24 to 48 hour period if the headache returns after it's been abolished um and depending on and depending on what works for that person so i guess an important point is a lack of response to these treatments um the triptans isn't a class effect necessarily so if someone tries sumatriptan for instance and it doesn't work then maybe try risotriptan Tries a trip down doesn't work. Maybe try Ellie trip down. And same, yes, and the same goes for um, mode of delivery. So, 
some people just you know some people will do very well just with the tablet some people need the oral disintegrating wafer some people's headaches come on so quickly that you need the um the injection or the nasal spray so again there's there's a whole lot to be done in that second line space before um bumping it up um so that's that and we've got um perhaps on the horizon as well um there's there's the newer medications called the Gepants, um, which are uh, the a, a variation on the CGRP antagonism theme, and I'll go into the, the CGRP um, antagonist a bit later. But yeah, these are oral small medic molecule um, CGRP receptor antagonists. Um, TGA's approved them, but they're awaiting PBS review later on in this year, and if they work anything anywhere um near as well as the preventative cgrp antagonists then um hopefully we'll be on onto something good with them too but at this point in time not available in australia okay so for the people who suffer with migraine which is enormously expensive to our community our mm. acute treatment is aspirin so three aspirin clear or ibuprofen, whichever one works for the patient, keep going with that into the future. The second line treatment is the triptans. It's not a class effect. Try them all if you need to and keep an eye out for the CGRP antagonists in the future. So what is the future of migraine treatment then, Kim? Do we have um, the CGRPs potentially coming? Uh, is there any other magic bullet out there for our patients? For the acute treatments um yeah not necessarily but the exciting stuff the future is now <laughs> with the with the preventatives <laughs> the, right the, so um, let's let's talk about preventative treatment then yeah. um how do we manage those people who need something a bit more than that episodic acute management okay sorry before i go on i i just failed to mention two key points with the acute treatments um number one for those who have significant nausea add in a prokinetic so usually metoclopramide as soon as possible and then the other key point is that um, paracetamol surprisingly has very little evidence for it so you can basically throw that out however if someone says they respond to it then that's fine <laughs> but generally less less evidence than the other medications now um preventers Let's talk about it. <laughs> so, Let's talk preventatives. <laughs> um, so you think about preventers, again, strict criteria or recommendations from the headache societies is um, so anyone who's having more than two headaches per month and um, you start to think about preventers, um, you'd call that um, episodic migraine. But if someone's having um, greater than 15 headache days per month, then that's chronic headache. I've thought about this because I don't actually, the only thing I think about is if someone's really suffering from their migraines, taking lots of time off their daily duties um, and the acute treatments aren't effective to curtail that, um, then it just opens you up to a whole variety of medications. So the way that we choose um, which ones uh, really comes down to patient characteristics i'll come back to that the ease of use of the medication and because we um uh, and of course pbs criteria um because not all medications are um equally funded so when it comes to patient characteristics i think um 
most GPs would be very familiar with the with the usual first line. So we're thinking about um, propranolol, pyramate, candesartan, amitriptyline, valproate, etc., um, pazotifen. Um, and we'd all know these are very commonly used medications, not just in migraine, but in um, uh, in other uh, in other systems. So when I say parent patient characteristics, what I uh, mean is just thinking about how you can fit those medications to that person's needs, thinking about contraindications. So unfortunately, pregnancy is a big contraindication for most for all um, medications, um, the preventers. Um, you can think about whether someone's got hyper or hypotension. So you'll be, you know, not thinking about propranol. You think, oh, if they have got hypotension, think propranol. If they're quite hypotensive and bradycardic, like a young woman, for instance, you're probably not going to be thinking about propranolol or clandestatin, reactive airways disease, if they're overweight or underweight, if they have insomnia. So we can use the side effects of some of these medications to our advantage. So, um, for instance, that's, you know, what amitriptyline's wonderful for as well. If someone's not sleeping all that well, then a little bit of amitriptyline at night time can certainly help with that too. Um, there's, as GPs, you'd probably be able to, um, you, you'd be more conversant in all the quirks of PBS um, prescribing. <laughs> um, I guess the, the key things to know are um, that there's no authority required for propranolol or pazotifen. So you can try those. If you want to bump, bump up to something like topiramate, um, which is good for both episodic and chronic migraine, then uh, you can either go off-label, and it's not very much um, to do to do that, but if you go by PBS criteria, the person has to have um, failed or not be in a position to use pisotifen or propranolol. So that's that. I guess the, the key points with those as well is I can't say the percentage off the top of my head, but this will work for a reasonable portion of people, but for a great proportion of people, these first line medications don't work. Um, and then we think about the next line, assuming that all um, other variables have been ironed out, such as um, adherence to medication, um, mm -hmm. good education on migraine and goals of care have already been discussed. So assuming that all that's been done, then you can think about going up to the next line of treatment so this is the future is now well in fact the future is yesterday because we've had botox for quite a while now <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's that so there's botox the current toolbox we have a, a botox and um the monoclonal antibodies against cgrp um receptor and so we just i guess we just call those the cgrp antagonists um, and in Australia, we have four of those, um, and they all have extremely difficult names to pronounce. And annoyingly, their brand names are no easier to pronounce. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know what they're trying to do to us. But there's Arenumab, which is Amavig. There's Fremunizumab, which is a Jovi. Galcanizumab, Mgality, and Eptenizumab by Petty. <laughs> um, uh, so these are these are the options now. So we think about those and people who've failed three first line medications. So and that's the PBS criteria. Again, you can use any of these off label, but they're very expensive. You know, um, I think a vial of Botox goes for about a thousand bucks, and we use two vials um, every three months for Botox. 
Right. Um, so that's what we look at. Is there anything in particular you would like to know about these before I could, before I talk all day about how wonderful they are? <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of the monoclonal antibodies, of course, um, I don't imagine that's something the GP can initiate. Uh, how do we get our patients onto the monoclonal antibodies? Yeah, so um, they, so you'd have to, so for the first prescription, it has to be to a referral to a neurologist. So that's the PBS criteria. They have to have, the, the first prescription needs to have been um, uh, done by a neurologist um, and with confirmation of the diagnosis and confirmation that three first line treatments have been failed or are contraindicated. Um, right. And then so for Botox, uh, is that useful for all types of migraine or only in a particular subset of our patients? Oh, it's um, so certainly anecdotally um, and uh, yeah, no, anecdotally, it's it's suitable for all of my, all the patients that I've seen migraine with aura or migraine without aura. Um, it can be used for episodic and it can be used for chronic Um but by PBS criteria, it has to be chronic, so greater than 15 headache days per month. With the monoclonal, uh, with the CGRP antagonists, um, the neurologist can write the first script. Um, we And generally, that's I'll, I'll do that. I'll bring them back after three months, which is what the first script allows you. Um, once monthly injections for three months, bring them back, see if it's, if it's been effective. Um, and if it has, I write the next script, which is for six months. And from there on in, as long as it continues to be effective for the patient, um, and that's by effective, the definition of, is reduction of headaches by 50%, um, then a GP can continue to write those scripts. Fantastic. So, Kim, where hmm. to from here? Where to from here? Oh, my gosh. Um, well... I would think <laughs> where to from here. Hopefully, I think these these CGRP inhibitors have been uh, antagonists rather have been absolutely revolutionary. Um, they're the first. So hopefully, where to from here is that with increasing recognition of migraine and treatment, and now treatment with medications that have that are what I've seen in clinic is that these medications, you tend to know earlier whether or not people respond to them. Generally, most, a lot of people do respond to them. Remembering though, that I, I see people who are, have been referred by people like yourself in the first place where they've failed three first line medications. So generally these, we, we get a very good response to these medications. They have very little side effects. People can take the treatment into their own hands. It's a once monthly injection. Fabulous. It's not having to remember to take a tablet every single day. Um, the, I would hope that, so there's a, there's a push for them to be, um, to be first line. So to have people not have to do the trial and error of the oral medications, uh, mm -hmm. because I mean, it's, it's absolutely in terms of healthcare costs, absolutely makes sense. These are expensive medications. And yeah. if you, and if we can get away with treating migraine with um, a less expensive medication, then it benefits, you know, the entire healthcare system. But when you think about how that works 
on the ground, that's a lot of time invested by people who are already suffering. You know, you need to give each oral medication um, at least three months, ideally six months to see if they work. Um, they, so that's, you know, three, three to six months times three medications, you're using up almost a whole year. Um, not to mention the costs of coming and, you know, coming and going from uh, GP visits as well and lost productivity mm. in the meantime. So I would think that in the right, um, in the right circumstances, um, it would be great to see CGRP um, antagonists pushed a bit further up in the, uh, in the PBS, but um, so that that's in an ideal world where things don't cost anything. <laughs> um, I guess the, the, in terms of what else the future holds, it'd be very nice to, one huge gap in the market is um, for pregnant women and breastfeeding women. Um, mm. At this point in time, maybe, you know, they, there's people, women who are pregnant have to go off their preventers mm. um, in certain circumstances and with, you know, with good, with thorough discussion of the pros and cons, there are a couple of preventers you can use, for example, propranolol. Um, but generally we avoid it. Um, it would be, but there's generally no preventers and no acute treatments, um, that can safely and broadly be applied to pregnancy. Um, even with the newer medication, so even Botox, which is not systemically, um, absorbed, um, just because of lack of, um, studies into it, um, we still can't safely recommend Botox during pregnancy and certainly monoclonal antibodies um, for CGRP um, being relatively new medications, we um, definitely can't recommend either. But that'll just be a matter of time as, as with all new medications, you know, after a while um, in use, then the data will gather and we'll be able to provide women um, with uh, much better advice on the safety um, profile of these medications. So that's my right. So, hmm. oh, Kim, it sounds like a research project just waiting for you. <laughs> um, so just to summarise then, our take-home messages, I suppose, are that migraine is common and to always suspect it. Mm -hmm. Be careful with our diagnosis of migraine, making sure we're excluding other types of headache and the more sinister causes like space occupying lesions, subarachnoid hemorrhage, giant cell arteritis. Mm -hmm. Uh, start with our simple anti-inflammatories, try all the triptans and those second-line medications like the propranolol, amitriptyline, topiramate. How good is amitriptyline? Oh. Uh, and then we've got the Botox and CGRP antagonist monoclonals uh, for those people who need something a little bit more. And, of course, the reminder that pregnancy is dangerous, particularly for migraine sufferers and uh, mindful of the fact, as you said earlier, that paracetamol is pointless, uh, one of the few medications you can take during pregnancy. Mm. Kim, is there anything else we need to take away from today's talk to change our practice, do you think? Um, I think we've covered most of it. I, um, I, I think we've covered definitely the key points. It really just comes down to suspecting it, um, diagnosing it to the best of um, uh, one's abilities, going through that stepwise process of 
acute than preventative management and referring on, I guess that's maybe that's the next point to um, point out is once you get to that point where you're a bit stuck, please do talk with us. Um, uh, and there's, I think this podcast was for GPs in far North Queensland and North Queensland, is it? Um, so I could, you know, put in, put in a plug happily <laughs> to say, <laughs> please call your local neurologist. Um, so, you know, we're very happy to take calls at the hospital um, uh, if you're unsure or, you know, if it's less urgent than just a referral um, through the hospital. That's absolutely fine if there's any diagnostic uncertainty or treatment uncertainty or um then then do refer on and this is what that's what we do we manage migraines um that uh that aren't behaving how they should in primary care so do discuss with us we're very happy to discuss um the and then um in terms of uh other take-home points or points to realize oh that's it is weaning the medications. So people don't need to be on preventative medications forever. Um, and you can think about um, stopping preventative medications, including CGRPs and Botox, um, after, you know, anywhere between sort of two, one to two years of headache freedom, um, which is some, what some people do like to, to try. So that's absolutely um, a thing. You're not necessarily committed to being on preventative migraine treatment forever. Fantastic. Dr. Kim Forrest, neurologist in Cairns, working in the public hospital there. Thank you so much for your time talking about headache today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. For more information about The Roundup or to share your feedback and ideas for future episodes, visit nqrth.edu.au forward slash roundup hyphen podcast or contact us at nqrth.mackay at jcu.edu.au. We also want to advise that the views and opinions presented in this podcast are those of the speaker only and do not represent the views and opinions of James Cook University, Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs or Queensland Health. The content supplied in this podcast is not intended as medical advice and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs is an initiative of the Australian Government's Integrated Rural Training Pipeline and is facilitated by James Cook University in partnership with public and private hospitals, Queensland Aboriginal and Islander Health Council, Health Services, Aboriginal community controlled health organisations and general practice clinics.